Hey there, welcome to LSAT Demon Daily Digest. I'm Ben Olson, that's Nathan Fox. Together we're the founders of LSATdemon.com and our weekly podcast, Thinking LSAT. Here's what we talked about this week. This email is from Dan. Nathan and Ben, I recently discovered the demon and have been enjoying all facets of it immensely, in addition to watching some of the Demon Daily videos, which raised a question for me that I think others might benefit from hearing answered. I will be using my post-GI 9-11 bill benefits from my time in the military to cover law school tuition. Because the GI Bill will cover 100% of the tuition at public institutions, naturally scholarship money is not as much a concern for me, barring acceptance to a private school that does not participate in the Yellow Ribbon Program, which outlines private schools' policies on matching the amount of tuition paid by the government on your behalf, etc. Okay. I will hopefully be applying as a splitter with a 3.0 GPA from my degree-granting institution and an accumulative undergraduate GPA of about 3.3. I wanna stop there. The only thing that's gonna matter is your LSAC GPA. So you're gonna wanna upload all your transcripts to LSAC and see what they tell you your UGPA is. All of your undergraduate classes that you ever took up to the moment where you were granted a degree that's where they're going to calculate your UGPA from. So if you took classes after you graduated, those don't count. If you took classes before you graduated, then those will count. So maybe you're a 3.3. We don't know. Yep. I have a reported LSAT flex score. Remember when we used to have the LSAT flex? Yeah. That's not a thing anymore. It's just the LSAT. So I have reported LSAT score of 149 from 2020. Mm. and will be taking the test in April with a goal of 170 now that I am more seriously studying. My strategy is to leverage the fact that if I get into one of my REACH schools, for example, UC Irvine, but I'm offered no money, I can still attend free of charge because of my GI Bill, yellow ribbon, whatever. This should allow me to more safely apply to some higher ranking schools with my 3.3, with the expectation that I get into some of them and not have to worry about loans. Yes. Do you see any flaws in this strategy? What do you think, Ben? As, as long as you get in and you have the GI Bill, then you can go for free and not pay for law school. I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to get the best LSAT score you can get and then applying broadly. The worst thing that can happen to you is that these schools say no. And if any public schools say yes, then great. There you go. You can go for free, even if they don't offer you a scholarship. Potentially, you're wasting your GI Bill benefits that you could use on a family member. I know that that's not the case for many people, but for for some people, they can use their GI Bill money on a spouse or kids or whatever. And if that's the case, then, you know, you might want to think about it like, hey, maybe I really should just focus on getting a tuition scholarship from law schools. The fact is, law schools are willing to just not charge you If you're going to like raise the prestige of their school and a 3.0170 might raise the prestige of a UC Irvine. I haven't looked at their 509 recently, but maybe that's a scholarship number at UC Irvine. If that's the case, then you definitely would want that scholarship instead of, you know, using your GI benefits. Yeah. One thing to keep in mind, too, is when you get into a school, that's great if you can use your GI benefits and go for free. But. If you have to use your GI benefits, that means that you're likely in the bottom half of the class. So you're you're less likely to do well at that institution as opposed to one in which you got in with a full ride. And so, I mean, it's not the end of the world, but just keep in mind you have a little bit more of a battle to fight once you get into school. There is big value, I think, in being a big fish in a small pond. The schools have limited resources. They have limited, like... You know, they have premier opportunities for their students that they're going to talk about endlessly on their websites or in their glossy brochures or when you do a campus visit, they're going to pump up all of these like, you know, top level opportunities at that school. But what you have to recognize is that those top level opportunities at that school are only available to the people who really do well at that school. So, yeah, take that scholarship and give yourself a better chance of getting all of the really good stuff at that school. 
I like that plan a lot better than sneak into a school, use your GI Bill benefits to pay for it. But then now maybe don't do as well at that school. Maybe you don't, you know, like you're not a star there. I mean, you want like the professors to know your name, right? You, you want to be in the top 10% so you can benefit from OCI and all yeah. these other things that really serve the top echelon of the class. Yep. The remainder of my background includes working closely with a corporate attorney as a certified paralegal in litigation for two years after college before the military. So I'm very familiar with what civil practice looks and feels like, i.e. the arduous lifestyle I am getting myself into. I am also aware that this will matter little in the admissions process. Sad face. You know, I guess I would want to say it, it will matter on the margins. Like you're probably going to write a pretty compelling personal statement. I don't know if you're going to write about this or if you're going to write about the military stuff, or maybe you're going to write about both, but like your resume and your personal statement here are going to indicate that you're capable of success in this field. And that, you know, it's not nothing. It's not nothing. It, it's not a lot. And I'm glad no. that you recognize that. And we don't want people going out of their way to do this. That said, I do think the bigger benefit is that you worked in this environment for two years and you weren't deterred from it. You still want to do it. Yeah, it goes <laughs> back to our mouse that's one, a mouse win. two discussion yeah. that we were having on the Thinking LSAT podcast. It's like, wow, you were already there trying to churn that cream for two years and you still want to do more of it. That's a pretty good sign that you're the mouse number two that's going to be successful. Uh, go to thinking else at if you want to listen to a 20 minute discussion about that metaphor in daily videos, you both often caution subscribers against attending law school when it does not fit their lifestyle or personality and tend to warn some like me that write in with woes of low marks and high hopes of the difficult journey ahead. I didn't work nearly as hard as I could have in college, but since then have developed my work ethics substantially that said, do you think I stand a fighting chance? Thanks for taking the time. Respectfully, Dan. You know, Dan, the only thing we have for you right now, I think, I mean, it looks like you're a 3.3 with a 149. That's what you got right now. Yep. That's like a not going to happen. That's not great. But look, I think you already know the answer to this question, Dan. If you think you've worked, developed your work ethics substantially, then you know that you're capable of working. And that itself in, <laughs> leads to more work, right? People who believe that they can work hard because they've seen themselves work hard are more likely to also then end up working hard. We won't know until you actually start putting in the work and seeing your practice test scores, but I don't see why you shouldn't try. You believe that you can do it. You've seen yourself work hard in other situations. Great. Do it. You have an excellent opportunity here, Dan, to demonstrate this work ethic via the law school admission test. I don't like it that you're anchored on the April test. You said I will be taking the test in April. Why? I would prefer that you instead have a strategy of I'm going to take practice tests and learn as much as I can from those practice tests until I get to a score that's going to get me to the school I want to go to. And if that magic number for you is 170, fine. We do see people make improvements from 149 to 170 all the time. Like that's these days, that's not even a like that's not surprising. I think it used to would have been, huh, Ben, like five yeah. years ago, 10 years ago in classroom. 149 to 170. Holy shit. Yeah. Now it's like, oh, 149 and you're going to and you're going to start prepping. Yeah. Like, I'm hoping I can get you to 170. Yeah. So. But I think that's going to answer like you're going to answer your own question yourself there, Dan, which, you know, is that 170 real or is it not? I know that you are more seriously studying and I know that people do make that leap. So now it's just entirely on you to make it make it happen like do it so <laughs> i would love to speculate about your chances if you make it to 170 like if you make it to 170 you're going to get lots of great offers um and i will speculate on your chances if you don't make it past 150 <laughs> you know then you're not going to have a bunch of amazing offers yeah 
And somewhere in between is an outcome that is somewhere in between. So it, it's an it's just it really is. I, I want people to think about the LSAT as an opportunity. All those good things that you want the law school to believe you are. Hardworking, dedicated, focused, serious, know what you're getting yourself into, you know, all those things, right? Oh, rise and shine by hard at work every single day, no days off, <laughs> all that bullshit that people like to say. Well, OK, good. Do all that and your LSAT is going to show it. And then, you know, it's longer because have to you make can't fake it. You can't fake a good right. LSAT score. Right. It's impossible to guess your way to a 170. I mean, like you're the only way to get a 170 is to actually understand that shit. And it could be from raw talent or, you know, all the books you read when you were a kid. It could also be because you worked your ass off to learn how to do the law school admission test. Either way, the schools will be interested. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We have a prodigy or we have a hardworking <laughs> attorney. Either yep. way, great for our team. Great yep. win. I mean, yeah, the 170 makes our school look good. Yeah. It's kind of as simple as that. Thanks, Dan. Hello and welcome to the LSAT Demon Daily. My name is Eric Johansson. I'm an LSAT Demon team member. Joining me today is Haley Williams, who is a former LSAT Demon student who just crushed the LSAT and is here to share her LSAT success story. How are you doing today, Haley? Good. How are you, Eric? I'm doing pretty well. Uh, great to meet you and great to have you on. Really appreciate your taking the time to come and share your story. Yeah. Why don't we, of course, yeah. Why don't we start at the beginning? Just give a sense of a broad overview of where you started with the LSAT and what your study timeline and approach looked like and then where you ended up. Oh boy. So um, if we're going to start from the very beginning, um, I took my first LSAT in December, 2017. So it's been over five years now, Wow! Um, but I haven't been studying that whole time. So I, there's that at least. Um, so I took the, my first LSAT. I didn't study for it. Like a lot of people, apparently I just kind of went in and I, I, was normally a good test taker all throughout school. So I didn't really worry about it. And so I got a 157 on my first LSAT. Okay. So that was, was an not official, what I wanted. That was an official attempt. When you say you didn't study, like you had never looked at any LSAT questions before. I had no idea what a logic game was. Yes. Okay. So your first LSAT, it, your diagnostic was an official attempt and you scored a 157. That's a damn good diagnostic. Um, and I didn't know that at the time. <laughs> I just knew it wasn't where I wanted to be. Um, but shortly after that, I started looking into resources to help me study because that I want, I thought I had way more in me than that. Um, and so that's when I found um, Nathan and Ben's um, thinking LSAT podcast, believe it or not. And that was a while ago. This was before the LSAT demon or any of that even existed. Um, listen to a few podcasts. Um, they're great. I love both of them. They play off of each other really nice. I think I like to think of both of them as good cop, bad cop. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> sure. um, I took a lot of their advice. Um, you know, they're big on warning people about you know, is this something that you really want? And I was much younger than I am now at the time. Obviously this was five years ago. And so I kind of took that to heart, like, Oh, maybe I should go out and live my life and figure out if this is something for me. So I did, I had a few jobs here and there. Um, I worked in a couple law offices up in the point and, um, about a year ago, like I'll say, October, 2021 was when I decided, yeah, this is what I want. I'm, I'm going to do this for real now. And then the LSAT demon was a thing at the time. Um, it had some pretty good reviews. So I decided to check it out. Um, I heard a lot of the other prep courses. They were good too, but, um, I don't know. I'd been pretty stuck on Ben and Nathan and I trusted them up to, until that point. So I decided to give them a try and I really liked their approach. Um, a lot of the other prep courses that I had dealt with or at least read about were really theoretical. And I'm just, it depends on the person, but I'm just nearly not that kind of philosophical person. I like 
to, Mm -hmm. you know, really think things through as they are instead of like these weird theoretical concepts. Mm -hmm. So I like how the demon just kind of nosedived you right into the material. Um, so I studied the LSAT from about October, 2021 until this year, November. Um, I took Ben and Nathan's advice. I didn't register for any test until I was where I wanted to be with my practice scores, um, which was around the mid 170 range. Um, took the September LSAT this year, got a 167. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, that's a 10 point improvement over four years, four and a half years. Um, still wasn't where I wanted to be though. So I took the October LSAT, got a 169. And at this point, everyone around me was like, that's a great score. Are you, are you sure you're going to want to take it again in November? I'm like, absolutely. Yes, <laughs> of course I am. So at this point, you know, all my friends, family, coworkers were thinking I'm absolutely insane, which it is what it is. But I took my last LSAT last September. I think it was November 22nd because I took the retake. I had some technical problems the first go around and I got my score back and it was a 177. So it's like, awesome. Heck yeah. Well, a little I'm bit better done. than a 169. I know. I know. I was like, Oh my gosh, if I had listened to everybody around me, everything, my whole life would be so much different than it is yeah. now. It's crazy. Well, it's just, I mean, it's so crucial that you trusted yourself that you knew you didn't, you didn't panic. You didn't question whether you were capable of pulling off a higher score on the official test. You realize, no, I just need to give myself another chance and I, to score what I'm capable of. And that's exactly what Ben and Nathan talk about all the time is, you know, you don't register for the official exam until you are where you want to be with your practice scores. So, I mean, Getting, seeing the 167 I got in September, like that, that, to be honest, that did hurt my ego a little bit, but it kind of softened the blow because I knew where I could be. So I was just geared up for the next test if I, and if I had to in November. So I, I really, that's a good piece of advice that they're yeah. doing now. I would, yeah. I would definitely take that. I think that's a great attitude to have. I, seeing that, and I had a similar experience when I got my first official test score back and it wasn't it was at the very low end of my range there i think you should if you don't score what you're capable of have a little bit of a ego hit or at least feel just a little feel annoyed by it right at the same time you shouldn't take that personally because i mean especially after my second attempt this year i went from 167 to 169 i was a little more than annoyed at that point. I got like, I took that personally. It took, I was pretty angry. So I think that is exactly the attitude that pushed me over the edge in November. Yeah. But it didn't shake your confidence, which I think is the key thing. Yeah. It just motivated me even more than I already was. Heck yeah. So you went from a 157 uh, cold diagnostic on your first official attempt to a 177 increase of 20 points. Amazing. Um, you're just a, as you know, a completely different applicant from what you would have been worth along that road. I know you took a lot of time off to just to get some work experience. Once you started with your study, were there any stumbling blocks along the way? Did you feel like you just were making consistent progress? Um, were there, or were there, were there any like things that you had to overcome to reach that next level? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, when you first start studying, um, the LSAT, there's a lot to learn within the LSAT. So, and even from test to test, there are completely different concepts on every test. So in the beginning, especially, um, I would see a lot of variance between my practice scores because there, I recognized that there were some areas of the test that I just didn't master yet. And then there were other areas that I was really solid. And I think it's the same for everybody. So there was a lot of variance in between until I got the consistency where I would regularly see everything and all the concepts on the test. And then you would just be able to rapid fire off. 
So there were definitely times where I would take a practice test to feel good about it and score 163 or whatever. And I'm like, dang, mm -hmm. I, I really thought I had that one. And then there'd be another test another weekend that I would take where I didn't feel good about it. And I would be 170. And I'm like, I, so it, it's really, I wouldn't take it too personally in the beginning. Like it, it just is what it is. The LSAT really rewards consistency. So mm. if you just stick with it, just keep trudging through, it'll come to you eventually. So that consistency is something that you brought into your study schedule or your study oh, plan. Yeah. You yeah. I made time it every day of my life. Yes, definitely. I mean, I worked full time during throughout my study journey. I mean, I didn't give up any of my hobbies. I still hung out with my friends. I just kind of made the LSAT and studying for the LSAT part of my life, if that makes sense. And so mm -hmm. it kind of, it felt like less burdensome to tackle it that way because it was just kind of part of my routine. Is it fair to say that you came to enjoy the LSAT? Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a beast, but it, it, it's kind of, a weird in a weird way i am obsessed with the lsat like it's just so interesting and once you actually unlock um what it's trying to teach it's it's kind of like a puzzle it's just a, a fun puzzle or a maze absolutely and what is it that you unlocked what is it that you think the lsat's trying to teach personally i really think that the most important lesson that I took away from the LSAT is the LSAT is teaching you if you can consistently fail almost, and you can just pick right back up and keep going. Can you fail over and over and over again and still want to try again and mm. figure it out? Mm -hmm. it, it's testing if you really are committed to learning the LSAT. That's Some what I resilience. think the overall theme is the LSAT writers are teaching you if you're willing to fail over and over and over again to get to where you want to be, to figure it out. For sure. And you, you clearly did figure it out. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm interested honing in on the games. The first time you took the LSAT, you had never seen a logic game before. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah. What was the process like if for you in learning the games? Was that... Did you find that that took the longest? Did you kind of piece those together pretty quickly? I, I assume at 177, you were probably perfect on that section by the time you took the, yeah. Yeah, that was kind of the first section that I really focused on because it was so foreign and alien to me. I had never seen anything like that. And so it just kind of like frustrated me. I was like, why are they even why is this even a thing on this test? That's what I was thinking in the beginning, but it's really just, I mean, it's simple really. Once you get to the root of what logic games are trying to test, test takers, it's, it's just testing if you can read directions and apply those directions with each other. Like if you can mm -hmm. take a set of rules and figure out between those set of rules, how they interact with each other. Absolutely. Which, again, I have not yet been to law school, but sounds like a lot of what goes into the law rules yeah, interacting, know, right? It's interesting because, um, as I, I previously mentioned, so I worked in two law firms while I was studying for the LSAT. And there were times when I would be at work and I'd be like, huh, this is like a logic game or this is a logical reasoning question. So there is some practicality to the test. I think it's just not as, um, archaic, if that makes sense. Totally. Yeah. Now have you, I, I assume that some of your expert guidance that you got to call it good enough at 169 came from some of your coworkers. Have you had the chance to, have you had the chance to gloat and say, I told you so? <laughs> Oh, definitely. I mean, um, most of my, the attorneys I work with and my coworkers, I, so I've, I sent out firm wide, not firm wide, but my department specifically, my department wide emails about all three of my scores. <laughs> and they're like, wow, that's really good. And then my coworkers, it depends. Some of them do want to go to law school and then some of them have no interest in going to law school. So they're just 
going up to me like, did you pass? <laughs> I'll just say, yeah, I passed the LSAT. But yeah, <laughs> I, I did get a chance to gloat on November 30th when I got that 177. I was in literal tears at my desk. It was, it was amazing. That's great. Well, what's next for you now that the LSAT is behind you? I, I, you know, maybe you can still check in and do a logic game every once in a while just for fun. But now that the LSAT is behind you, what's next for you? Um, so I'm planning to apply this cycle, which I know Nathan's probably shaking his head if he hears this because it's not early, it's December. Um, but I'm going to shoot my shot with my GPA and my LSAT score. If I don't like my offers. I'm, my goal is to get the best full ride to the best school possible. If I don't like my offers, I'll just apply next cycle. No big deal. I still have a job. Excellent. It's a great attitude. Well, I wish you the very best of luck. Please uh, stay in touch. Let us know how things go. We would love to get updates on your on your application cycle. Any final parting words of advice for current students who are on their own roads to LSAT success? Um, the one takeaway that I would encourage is don't forget to take care of yourself. Keep seeing your friends. Keep doing your hobbies. Keep going to work if that's what you enjoy. Um, you'll be surprised at how much just a, even a little bit of happiness will help you in your journey. And I found that the most I improved was when I was working, going to the gym, hanging out with my friends, just having a blast. Beautifully said. Take care of yourself and it's going to translate into... Yep, it'll, it'll come to you. Just be patient. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Haley, for joining and sharing your story. It was really great to chat with you. We got an email here from Blair. Hello. I've been a huge fan of the Demon Daily and LSAT Demon podcast. I'm currently working full-time and getting my master's. I will be graduating this May, and after taking some time off to relax, I plan to start studying for the LSAT, parentheses, using LSAT Demon, Demon Emoji. I love the demon emoji. That's so cool that the we have our own emoji. That's yeah, fantastic. That is good. I'm a bit of an LSAT virgin in the fact that I have never worked on any LSAT questions. For the diagnostic test, should it be timed or untimed? I've been told to do it untimed to see what my basic understanding is. And I've also been told to do it timed to replicate real test conditions. Just do the fucking test. Sorry. <laughs> Welcome to the demon. Um, yeah, do it timed. I'm, am I already overthinking the LSAT? Yes. Any help would be appreciated, appreciated as I start this LSAT journey, exclamation point. Yeah, um, I think you're overthinking it, Blair. You need to get in there and do the damn test. We would say or do it timed. Don't do it. Or don't do it. I well, don't care if you come here and just right. do drilling. Like that also doesn't matter, right? That's overthinking it. Do one question. Yep. Uh, one of the first blog posts that I wrote for, uh, the website was about, Hey, where do I start my prep? Just start with any question. Just do an LSAT question. Don't be an LSAT virgin. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> don't also don't like just get so uptight about these practice tests. I mean, you're already like you're, you're delaying your own prep because you, well, I want to make sure that I need to replicate my real test conditions, or I need to make sure that I, I got to do the test untimed so that I can test my basic understanding. Just do a test. We would always recommend that you just do it timed. But even if you don't want to do a full test, get started drilling. You can drill for free. Uh, LSAT Demon has a great free account. It lasts forever and it has like probably dozens of hours worth of work that you could do using the free account including drilling. You can just do one question at a time. You could jump right in there, Blair, and start learning instead of like planning to learn. Yeah. I mean, Blair, you're listening to the podcast. Why not spend 15 minutes doing questions? You're going to start studying in May. That's fine if you're doing that to make sure you get a 4.0. But if your grades are already in order, why not spend time drilling? Also, People it's a like master's it. program. So who cares what your grades oh, are? Oh, it's a master's program. Yeah. Who cares? <laughs> Why are Start you even doing now. the master's program if you're going to law school would be yeah. another question. But it sounds like you're about to graduate. So hopefully it makes sense. But 
You can start now. Yeah. Especially if you're listening to our podcast and stuff like, yeah, don't plan to learn. Just get going. Just start doing some stuff already. Yep. It's probably our best advice. Do we ever tell people to do untimed tests? I don't think we do. I don't think I don't see any point in it. No, because they can always finish the section after the test is over. Yeah. <laughs> do it timed. Don't rush. Focus on accuracy. Solve as many of them as you can. Randomly guess on the ones that you don't have time to finish during the time. Then after time is up, thoroughly review all of your mistakes. And if you want to take the time to work through the rest of it untimed, yeah, you can figure out where you're at with regard to those questions. See if you can solve them. Take all the time you want. But if you are ever going to be doing a test, I think the best diagnostic value is time yourself so that you can get the results. And get used to ignoring the, the well, timer. That's the main reason why we do timed practice, period, right? We do timed sections throughout the week. We think everybody should be doing at least one timed section of each type per week. And the main idea of that is to just get used to the idea that the clock is going to be ticking, but you're not going to be paying any attention to the clock. Yeah. Thanks, Blair. This question or actually questions comes from producer Eric. Yeah, Eric wanted us to talk about what's the hardest logic game or what makes a logic game difficult. What comes hmm. to mind for you? Um, it's interesting because some of the games that I thought were the hardest are not necessarily the hardest any longer, given the different ways we approach games now. But historically, I used to always think of the new and old CDs game or new and used CDs game. That was a challenging one. Yep. The uh, dinosaurs game yep. is one that comes to mind. Um, the virus is one, but none of those seem extraordinarily difficult. There's also the snakes one. Do you know the, the, the cages yep. or something? Yeah. Yep. Well, one thing that most difficult, you know, if if a game is difficult, what makes it difficult? To, what makes it difficult? Well, probably complexity, right? So complexity, games that have yep. many variables, for one thing, like putting nine things in order or putting nine things in groups is a hell of a lot harder than putting five things in order or putting five things in groups. So Generally, just yep. sheer volume can make a game hard. And I think we see this, like if you compare prep tests one through 40 to prep tests 40 through 90, whatever, the, the recent tests just seem to be smaller that way. Like they just don't have as many moving parts. They've got fewer variables, fewer rules. Yeah, that's true. Some of the older tests a long time ago were a lot more text heavy, right? Let's really set this up, give you a lot of information, and then you're parsing through that to try to find what the rules are. Yeah. Similarly, a game that has many dimensions it can be perceived as or actually more difficult than a game with fewer dimensions. So a game like put six things in order or put six things in groups, you really only have two dimensions there, right? You've got the people and the order, or you've got the people and you've got the groups, but other games are going to be like, well, you got to put, you got to, you got to select, or you got, sorry, you got to put people in groups, then put them in order. And it's like, well, wait, now I got people groups and I got order. So it's like a three dimensional game instead of a two dimensional game. Yeah. And that doesn't always make it harder, but you know, just generally speaking, if you've got more players and you've got more dimensions, it could be harder. The last thing that I would say is if it's got more flexibility, flexibility tends to make games hard. Mm -hmm. So if there's a game that has really significant bottlenecks, like it's got one player who's mentioned in three rules and it's like, well, the game just essentially revolves around that one player. That's a game where worlds is going to really clearly let you see how the system works. On the other hand, there's games that have infinite flexibility. I'm thinking of the zones and subzones game. That game had infinite flexibility. There were no minimums. Um, you, you know, you could have nothing at all. You could have just one thing. You could have just two things or you could have multiple things. And it was like, whoa, there's too much flexibility here. There, there aren't bottlenecks. If there aren't bottlenecks, then it can be harder to solve that system. Yeah. What else are you thinking about difficulty on games? Well, actually, I was just remembering a game that I used to think was very challenging, and that is the bus seats game. Do you remember that one? 
I think that game is really hard. You're not talking about the the uh, well, but I have seen. Yeah, worlds can kill that game, though. Well, it's interesting. I think the reason I persisted in thinking that it's so hard and I want to do it again now because it's been so long. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the last video I have here is from 2006, 17. <laughs> Anyways, but um, when even when I tried to do worlds, it seemed like there were still rules that yeah. weren't easy to incorporate. And so it's like, oh man, I just got to keep reapplying them for each of these questions. It's one of those games that's hard to solve. I, and easily. I think it's because of the flexibility. It's because yeah. even if you do start making worlds and it, it can it can reduce the complexity somewhat, there's still too much freedom within both of those worlds. And then there's rules that it's like, well, shit, to get rid of this rule, I'm going to have to split each one of these two three ways. Do there's I really want to go from statements. two to six? Uh, yeah. And so that can make a game difficult. Yeah. Last thing I want to talk about, though, is um, I think and this might be the most important thing, at least from my perspective, I think perception makes a game difficult far too frequently. And I'm thinking of the mm. Zephyr Airlines game, which just came up in my class the other day. I'm mm. always so flummoxed. Like it's the you want to see me stuck as an LSAT teacher. Yeah. Watch me teach the Zephyr Airlines game and struggle to figure out why people don't like naturally just draw a map that roughly r replicates North America. I'm not, you don't have to draw a whole map in North America. You just have to roughly position Honolulu, Vancouver, Philadelphia, Toronto, and Montreal. There's only five cities. And even if, you know, you've never been to Canada and you're just like, well, Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, I don't know, North, just put them <laughs> up there at random yeah <laughs> hawaii is probably south and probably west philly is probably east put those on a map and then start drawing the connections because that's a game where and, and so perceptions and mm -hmm. preconceived notions right that's a game where people absolutely try to put square pegs into round holes they yeah. they're like well i learned in princeton review how to do a grouping game and i'm gonna this is a grouping game and it's like huh grouping game I guess yeah. it could be you could think of it as groups, but you could also think of it as an in-flight magazine. And here's the map of the five cities that this shitty airline goes to. There can't be that many combinations. It's just yeah. pretty simple. And yeah. so the thing that makes that game difficult, and I've seen just year after year, class after class of people crash up against this game and just totally fail. So, you know, I, I feel you. I understand that uh, you think it's hard, but I think it's because you're not using your common sense brain. You're using LSAT brain, which you didn't learn from us. You're you're using some like, well, I have to put this game into a preordained template. Mm -hmm. And you start trying to put a game like that into some template that you're bringing to it out of nowhere. You know, if it's not common sense, then it might make no sense at all. And that's what I think people do. They get so technical on a game like that, that instead of just figuring it out, they freeze up. Is that your experience with that game? Yeah. Just like, what do I do? I don't even know what to do. Right. Like people just, they do nothing. Yeah. And it's like, are, do you mean to tell me that if I hired you for Zephyr Airlines and I gave you these very simple rules and I'll give them to you because you're my employee now and I'm like, hey, is this going to work out? Like how, what's this, what are the implications with these restrictions that I've already told you? What's that mean for this system? Mm -hmm. I think in pretty short order, you're going to go, Oh, so Honolulu is not connected to Montreal then. And if you see that it's totally common sense. I, I really think a sharp high school kid, your kids could figure that out. Couldn't they? Yes. We could give it to him and try <laughs> see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah, if you, if you separate yourself from this idea of an LSAT game that must yeah. be solved in a certain way, just think about the problem being presented to you. Yeah. Any other thoughts on what makes games difficult? Yeah. Just anything different from the standard fare throws people off and freezes. Until they get good enough at it to realize that there's always something different from the standard fare. 
There's always little wrinkles. They're not that bad. You know, it's like the difference between which one of the following must be true and each of the following could be false except. Well, wait, each of the following could be false except. So four of these could be false. So the other one must be true. And that's why, you know, saying which one of the following must be true is the same thing as saying each of the following could be false except. And it's just, like, that's the type of curveball that we're dealing with on the yeah. LSAT logic games. It's just like, well, no, it makes sense. It means something. You can figure it out. You just have to not get, you know, people are like, I got caught up in the language. And it's like, oh, so you mean you didn't read it and understand it? Because that's what that means. You know, caught up in the language means you didn't, you just didn't solve it. You didn't sit there and solve it. So I think a lot of that happens on games, right? People just, I think that they go, this is different. This is weird. I don't know how to do this. And that right. thought right there makes it so they don't know how to do it. <laughs> that's the self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Yep. Hey there, welcome to LSAT Demon Daily. I'm Francesca, teacher and tutor with the LSAT Demon. And I'm here with one of our former students, Maya Davis. Maya, how are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Good, thank you. Um, so Maya, we're here to chat because you've crushed the test as well. Um, we've had a couple of these success stories on the pod lately, and here's another to fire everybody up who's trying to do what you did. So Maya, why don't you tell us about, you know, give us like the big overview of your journey, give us the diagnostic and final score. How did that go? Yeah, so I um, have always wanted to go to law school, so I've always known I've had to take the LSAT and kind of the back of my head. Um, but then I met with my advisor in September, and I go to a really big university, and so I feel like advisors are the biggest turnover of all of the, the staff, and so I've had like four or five. Um, and so I learned at that meeting in late September this year that um, I was further ahead in my credits than I thought I was, which meant I had to take the LSAT this semester and apply to uh, law schools this semester. Um, and so I took a diagnostic that same week, um, which was a 159. And then I scored a 175 on the November test. Congratulations on the score. That must be awesome. I hope you did something to celebrate that. Um, so when you're saying that you were further ahead in your credits. I mean, you've had a bit of a non-traditional experience with your undergrad, right? What was that like? Yes. So um, I came into college with uh, more than I expected credits in like dual enrollment and AP stuff from high school. Um, and then I kind of just, I did through summer semesters and stuff like that. Because I mean, I kind of, um, I'm completely self-funded. So it really benefits me to get stuff done as quick as possible. And so I guess I just did more credits than I thought I had. <laughs> and so I thought I was a sophomore or a junior. And then I went in and I was a senior. I think that that really goes to show this point that sometimes you don't know what the timeline is. And for a lot of people, when we say that, that ends up being you're on a longer timeline than what you anticipated. But it can go both ways. Um, and I mean, of course, if you there wouldn't have been something so bad about waiting longer to study longer to get a better score if you didn't have that score. But with the 175, I mean, there's there's not much yeah. further you can go from there. Yeah. I think you're good to go. So as for the actual LSAT studying itself, um, what did you do? How did you use the demon? Did you come from anywhere else before? What was your actual studying like? Yeah, so I did um, the demon live for all of um, October. Um, my boyfriend's awesome parents gave me a month of the demon, uh, as a gift, which was so great of them. Um, and so I started out with live for a month and then I switched to basic for the last like two weeks I had before the test in November. Yeah. I really, really liked the, the pace of the classes and the time frame really fit with my work schedule. And I really liked, especially, um, one of my biggest problems is wanting to go too fast. And so drilling and then building up to sections, I really like the section things. It helps me build up like stamina for time and especially logic games, which a lot of people, I'm sure it's the most difficult <laughs> thing because it's, you really have to train yourself to think a certain way. And I don't think a lot of people think that way. And so I really, really liked game of the day because it was really easy to fit into my schedule. And I really liked the whole world's approach. It just made sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. This point about stamina, um, was it that 
the, the, the stamina it takes to sit down and focus for a certain period of time? Or were you concerned about that being an issue on the day of the test? And how did you overcome that? Yeah, so I have issues focusing sometimes because I get really worked up and really anxious. And then I, I burn myself out by the end of the, the exam. And so this has happened on a lot of standardized tests for me, like the SAT, like I'm real great for the first few sections, but by the last section, I'm just guessing because I just want it to be done. And I would say definitely practice tests help a lot um, to build up that stamina, to get used to all the sections, how long it takes, that sort of thing. Um, on the day of the test during every break, I did like weird therapy breathing exercises. And I'm sure my, my proctor thought I was insane, but that helped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like the mindfulness breaks and the drilling feature that we do sometimes. Yeah, totally. It's about getting to know yourself and getting to know what you need. Um, and I always I always think about people ask to compare the LSAT to, for example, the MCAT, like if you have you know, friends on the, the med path at all. And I always joke that I feel really lucky that this test is only two and a half hours or, or maybe longer if you have accommodations, but as opposed to like a full day test, because that's where the stamina piece really becomes an issue. A lot of people worry about that. For some people, it is an issue. Um, and you mentioned that like you, by the end of the section, by the end of the test, you're kind of just guessing. I mean, like clearly not, you can't guess your way to 175, <laughs> but I absolutely know what you mean. And it's just about practicing under those time conditions and doing those at least once in a while, doing those like the full practice tests all in one sitting. I definitely think that that can mm -hmm. be valuable, even if you don't do it every single time you take a practice test. And when you say that logic games is the most difficult, um, it's interesting, actually, like everybody has a different thing that they struggle the most with. But so you're saying that reading comp and LR came more naturally to you. What was it about it that made it feel easy to you? I mean, I, they most certainly were not easy, but, <laughs> but like just the, the way of thinking I was already kind of used to, because like I said, stuff with the SAT, reading comp. I'm on, you know, I'm political science major. So I guess like most of my classes are just reading um, and stuff like that. And so I feel like a lot of people are trained, especially when you want to go into law, you're more concerned with like reading and stuff like that. You tend to be a humanities based person, but L like LG for me was like math. And that's <laughs> I'm not amazing at math. Yeah. I often think about that when people mention how much they hate reading comp or LR and all of the sections in the test have some bearing on law school. I mean, Rebecca and Matt recently, or a couple months ago, did an episode on how it transfers to actual stuff that they take in law school. But I always think it's a bit concerning when people say that they really, really hate RC or LR because it's like, well, what do you think you're going to be doing in this whole career? There's a lot of reading and a lot of arguments. Um, so that's it's great to have that mindset going into it and to be like, hey, this is something that I've already built some competence in and I can keep working. It's a slightly yeah. different type of reading, but similar skills. Um, did you face any difficulties while you're studying? Was there anything that you had to overcome? Yes. So um, I hit a plateau in like mid-October where I was really desperate to get a score back. I really liked the numerical like validation that like I was doing fine. Um, and so I was doing practice tests way too often. And I hit a wall where I got a 164 on about four or five practice tests in a row all in about a two week period. And that was not fun. <laughs> it was not like, I convinced myself, I was like, oh my God, like this is the best I can do. I might as well just take it now. But I think definitely just slowing down and taking a breath and actually evaluating practice tests before you move on to the next one can really be helpful. Because yeah, if you just keep doing it, obviously you're gonna get the same score. I'm the same person I was yesterday when I took that practice test and didn't review it. So it's... <laughs> You were also taking a lot of practice tests within a short period of time. Um, yep. So maybe if you had spread out those tests more, you wouldn't have seen that same fun. Not that there's anything wrong with doing that, but um, absolutely. And I also think that even when people are on plateaus for longer period of times, like it definitely happens. I, I was on one for a couple of weeks. People, sometimes it happens for like a month or two for sure. And it can be stressful. But you also have to remember that there is progress that's happening even if it's not directly related to your score. Now, sometimes you're actually not progressing and that's an issue with how you're reviewing and how you're using your time while you're studying. And that's something that you can work on as well. But if you feel like you're leaving a study session, having understood something that you didn't understand before, for example, you make one mistake and you review that mistake and you understand it, that's progress. Even if say on the next time you take the test, you're still um, slow, so you're still getting through fewer questions, 
but the questions that you are doing, you're doing with more accuracy than before. That's progress, even if it won't necessarily be immediately reflected in your scores. So that's something, words of encouragement to keep in mind if people are struggling with plateaus. So looking forward, you did apply this cycle, is that right? Yes. Um, so what's that been like, if you want to, to the extent that you want to speak to that? Yeah, um, it's something. I mean, I'm certainly, I'm considering as well, possibly just, you know, sitting on this score and then applying early again next cycle, considering that I'm pretty late in the game. But I mean, let's just see what I, what I can do now. I'm sure that I have a fee waiver, so there isn't like a ton of penalty other than like my time to apply to a bunch of places. I think like I'm applying to like six or seven, um, just to see, see what happens, see what I can get. Yeah. The only other penalty that um, you might want to think about is the the penalty of getting tempted by bad offers. Um, mm. And, you know, hopefully you don't settle for a worse offer than what you could get if you waited till next cycle, because you with a score like this and I I can only assume that your GPA is stellar as well. Um, and you clearly have a lot going for you. I don't think that you should settle for anything less than the best and anything less than your dream schools and going for free. Um, I mean that. Thanks. Um, of course. Um, so any final words of wisdom for people studying and, you know, also for people who are working while they're studying in school, while they're studying, any words of wisdom to get through this LSAT grind? Um, I would say definitely taking breaks can be more beneficial than studying for long period, long stretches of time. Um, it doesn't feel like it's helpful, but it really is like, if you're staring at that LG prompt for more than five minutes and you just can't, like it just won't go in, like you're reading the words, but it just won't even process, that's a sign to step away. It's a sign to take a break and then try it again because it's, it's not gonna, it's not something you can easily force. Yeah, absolutely, that's great advice. And that makes me think of like an analogy. I often compare stuff on the test to sports. Um, but like, for example, in the gym, your time recovering is just as important as your time actually spent in the gym. So people need to remember you're a human outside of this test, outside of the time you spend studying for it. And burnout is a very real thing. So I'm glad you shed some light on that. Thank you, Maya. And also everybody out there, you heard it here first. Elsa Demon can be a great Christmas gift. Holidays are coming up for your, um, uh, law school keener loved ones. <laughs> I'm mostly joking there, but anyways, um, thanks for coming on, Maya. We appreciate it. Thank you. Email daily at lsatdemon.com if you'd like to ask us a question or share some LSAT or law school admissions news. Thanks for listening.